Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Thursday, February 15th, day 132 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borschel-Dan here in our Jerusalem offices with the editor David Horvitz. Hi, David. Hi, Amanda. We will discuss the increasing calls for a ceasefire in Gaza from the international community and rumors of a two-state solution being imposed on Israel. Also, the growing likelihood of a full-on war in the North. All this and much more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. David, yesterday Germany and France expressed opposition to a planned Israeli offensive in Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah, but also at the same time yesterday, Spain and Ireland asked the European Union to, quote, urgently examine whether Israel is complying with its human rights obligations in Gaza, according to an accord linking rights to trade ties. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There are many other countries that are also calling for investigations and even a ceasefire. How do you see this playing out right now? Look, this is a process that's been going almost since the beginning of the Israeli response to October the 7th. And you're right, it's gathering pace. And you have countries that are, in any case, hostile to Israel, trying to turn up the international heat and somehow, as South Africa tried to do at the World Court, uh, impose uh, on Israel a prevention of, of, of continuing the campaign. I just, in that context, I think it's worth saying that there's nobody offering to send their own forces in to dismantle Hamas or to safeguard Israel, which of course Israel wouldn't trust them to do anyway. And therefore, what you really hear from not only the Prime Minister Netanyahu, but also from the army, from Chief of Staff Herzliya Levy, is, yeah, okay, that's good. We have to do this. So it's, it's worth, you know, however much conflict this might put Israel in, in terms of even the World Court and certainly some countries, it's going to be very difficult to pressure Israel. The only country that can really pressure Israel is the country that is crucial diplomatically and practically to Israel's continuation of this campaign. That's the United States. So you have this growing international pressure and you also have this from countries that are more supportive of Israel. You have what has, again, been, a, been an ongoing process, but this logical contradiction 
which is the United States, for example, and most relevantly saying, you know, of course we support Israel's declared goal of, they use different formulations, dismantling Hamas or uh, um, eliminating Hamas, things that uh, President Biden used to say, doesn't say uh, um, quite so often, if at all, lately, but certainly ensuring that October the 7th cannot happen again. So you had the White House um, National Security Spokesman, John Kirby, a couple of days ago, asked what are you worried about what Israel's going to do in, in Rafah and, and so on? I don't remember what the question was, but the answer was, no, we've never said that Israel can't go into Rafah. In fact, Israel has an obligation to try and dismantle Hamas or words to that effect. You can read the, um, uh, the direct quotes. Uh, we're just concerned about how they might be going about doing this and the imperative to keep civilian uh, fatalities out of the equation to protect the civilians and so on. And again, what you heard from the chief of staff most relevantly two days ago was we have been able to do this in his assessment in other places in Gaza, including Khan Yunis, where everyone said you can't work in Khan Yunis because there's so many people in that area. His argument is that Israel has been able to largely isolate Hamas from non-combatants in Khan Yunis, and he believes Israel is capable of doing the same thing in Rafah. And there are various plans that are being reported. There's been a lot of talk, and uh, I'm sure we've mentioned this in the past, uh, Israel would would encourage people who have taken refuge in Rafah to move back towards Khan Yunis. We saw yesterday some Palestinian civilians leaving Rafah and heading for heading north, not all the way north in Gaza, but towards the central areas of the Strip and so on. So you have this tension, and you have this tension practically on the ground, and you have this tension between, from supportive countries, uh, an endorsement in principle of Israel's right and even obligation to take down Hamas, dismantle Hamas, but an effort really what amounts to to depriving Israel of the legitimacy to do so. And that's the situation right now. Since you already mentioned the idea of moving uh, refugees or displaced persons back to Khan Yunus, let's also talk about the idea of coastal tent camps that was floated. What do you know about yeah, this? Just, uh, you know, that's another idea that's reportedly, uh, I haven't heard uh, any official Israelis talking about that. We have heard Israeli officials talking about the encouraging people to go back to other areas where the, where the fighting has declined. Um, but there have been out, uh, other reports on on the notion of a series of, of tent camps along the coast. I don't know that that's the case, uh, uh, that that is being planned. You know, there's a lot in this, in this war, by definition, in any war, there's going to be a lot that's not clear uh, until it happens. It's still not entirely clear. In fact, it's still not clear at all what kind of understandings there are between Israel and Egypt. Uh, we've heard of a, a range of comments in some cases, and in other cases, reports that Egypt is deeply concerned that Israel is going to go into Rafah, that lots of Palestinians from Gaza are going to either be encouraged to or uh, see no alternative but to cross the border into Egypt. We've seen Egypt building up its border defenses, deploying tanks. I think we have to say reportedly. I, I'm not sure that I've seen tanks deployed along the border, but we, ha we have heard reports that tanks are being um, deployed close to the border. We have seen uh, Egypt improving its defenses, its physical defenses along that border. We've heard reports that the barrier there is being extended m more than it was underground. Just in terms of the fog, Amanda, I've probably said this before, but even trying to understand what Egypt has been doing in the last few years, you, you cannot always find definitive answers. We have heard very serious Israelis with no political agenda saying opposite things, that Egypt has done its utmost to prevent Hamas bringing in weaponry and that Egypt has turned a blind eye uh, to Hamas bringing in weaponry. I, I don't know which of those accounts is true. 
Since we're talking about Egypt, let's discuss the hostage release talks, the negotiations that our Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, basically left yesterday. Why did he leave the talks? So we're now on Thursday, and as far as we know, there are talks scheduled for Cairo today with all the key players except for Israel, because Netanyahu, I think we we know this for a fact, um, he's basically, he, he said this last night, is does not believe in the necessity or even the advantage of an Israeli presence unless or until Hamas uh, withdraws what he keeps calling its delusional demands uh, as a condition for um, for, a, for a truce, hostage release, Palestinian security prisoner release process. Uh, Hamas has, has demanded all kinds of things, uh, um, including, I suppose, most critically, because some of the other demands are just so far, so far away from being... Uh, um, relevant um but the crucial i suppose practical demand that hamas is making is essentially it is insisting on surviving the war as a condition for um for a further hostage release process by which i mean it's demanding israel withdraw its troops during uh, um or during or after a pause and it's demanding that this process explicitly guarantee the end of the conflict the timing of that may be open to discussion as far as it is concerned but that's a demand that israel is not prepared to meet israel is not prepared to commit to ending this conflict and not tackling hamas anymore after a pause however long the pause and again we heard the chief of staff two days ago saying however long the pause we will be able to and we will be ready to and we will resume the campaign with full force so netanyahu is saying there's no point us even being there and listening unless or until hamas withdraws those kinds of demands and we understand that this has caused uh, no little um anger within the leadership of the of the of the of the war the war cabinet uh, you'll remember that early in the conflict, right after October the 7th, took a few days, uh, Benny Gantz's National uh, Unity Party joined the coalition on a temporary basis for the war. Um, Benny Gantz is one of the three key ministers, along with Netanyahu and Defence Minister Gallant, in the stewarding of the war, and they were not told that his party, Gantz's party, Gantz himself, his most important colleague, Gadi Eisenkot, were not told by Netanyahu ahead of time that he was not going to be allowing the Israeli delegation, which includes the head of the Mossad, uh, to go back to Cairo. And this is causing real friction. I assume that in the next few hours, uh, we may hear more about that. For now, as of you know, us speaking now, we've not heard Gantz or Eisenkot coming out publicly and saying this is outrageous and this is a breach of our understandings. That is apparently what they are um, feeling behind the scenes. One of the public statements that we did hear actually came from Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who called on Hamas, which is, of course, a rival of the Palestinian Authority, to make haste in agreeing to a deal with Israel in order to save the Gaza Strip from Israel's military offensive. I've often wondered when and how he would come out and speak about this, because, of course, he's... He's, I don't know if we can call him the elephant in the room, but he is definitely a major player in terms of Palestinian leadership. What did you make of this particular statement? Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, but even, you know, the terminology that we reach for <laughs> in the basic tools of, of what we're doing, right, the words, you know, is Hamas a rival of the Palestinian Authority? Well, yes, it is in theory, except there's all the endless talks that have been down the years about unifying and we've heard you know palestinian authority people say in recent days and weeks that if there were to be elections among the palestinians which there should be and if hamas were to win those elections within the framework of the palestinian authority you know so be it abbas is not hamas he's not directly i don't think or personally orchestrating terrorism 
Um, he cooperates, his forces cooperate with Israel in the West Bank. There's a great deal of self-interest there. He never departed from Arafat's narrative, which was of fundamental Jewish illegitimacy in this part of the world. Uh, and this is the relative moderate, and this is the, uh, the um, authority that the United States sees and most of the international community sees as crucial to the future governance of, of Gaza and the West Bank. Although the United States talks about a reformed Palestinian authority and there, you know, again, this is so complicated and there's such a mix of political agendas and people's elections in the United States and so on. So you have Netanyahu picking a fight with the United States because he runs a coalition where core elements of that are utterly opposed to any notion of Palestinian statehood. He's pretty, in the last many years, has been opposed to Palestinian statehood with full sovereignty. Uh, Joe Biden seems to believe that Netanyahu hasn't completely ruled out some form of Palestinian statehood without full sovereignty, a, a, dis, a demilitarized Palestinian state. The Americans are not saying the PA in its current form uh, can run Gaza. Netanyahu is saying the PA in its current form cannot run Gaza, but that's not the same thing, etc., etc. There is so much nuance and there are so many conflicting motivations and needs playing out here. You know, from an Israeli perspective, there needs to be down the road, it seems to me, some process by which Israel is not responsible for 2.3 million hostile Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli economy, just being really, you know, obvious about this, is not going to be easily able to sustain responsibility for Gaza post-war. So if Israel doesn't want uh, practical responsibility, I'm not talking about security concerns here, uh, practical responsibility for the day-to-day -day lives of a, uh, an enclave that has been abused by its Hamas rulers, well, then Israel has an interest in trying to work with supportive elements of the international community towards some kind of post-war Gaza. Much of the international community is trying to condition any readiness to get involved with some progress towards some kind of two-state solution, which this Israeli government opposes, which most Israelis consider to be impractical at the moment. And there you have some of the ingredients for why this is all so complicated and fraught. We'll go to a short break and discuss this slightly further. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their, like, blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. The Washington Post published an in-depth article today about a, quote, timeline for a Palestinian state. And some of the ingredients, as you say, would be 
that the government would allow the withdrawal of many, if not all, settler communities in the West Bank, a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem, the reconstruction of Gaza, and security and governance arrangements for a combined West Bank and Gaza. This, to me, just seems light years beyond the national dialogue over not wanting a two-state solution right now. Thank you very much, as said by our president, Isaac Herzog. Why do you think that this is so much in the news right now? Okay, I don't know, I don't know what to make of this report, which I'm sure is founded in something. Uh, I just don't know how substantive this kind of effort is. We understand that in the United States, there is a great deal of opposition to everything that Israel is doing in Gaza and that October the 7th has been widely airbrushed out of the context for everything. Uh, we understand that it's very difficult, practically speaking, it's very difficult to distinguish between Hamas, Gazans who support Hamas and Gazan victims of everything that has happened uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, we understand that the, uh, the, the president, this president who incredibly considers himself a Zionist and who was incredibly empathetic to Israel when he came here is facing re-election and his election chances are deemed to be harmed the more uh, uncritically supportive he is of Israel and we've heard him being more critical and we've heard people in his administration notably the Secretary of State being publicly very critical um, and maybe you know part of that is the context for some kind of ostensibly far-reaching very dramatic uh, effort uh, with a very short timeline to try and impose conditions <laughs> that Israel is not going to accept. And therefore, if, if you wanted to dream up um, a, 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 a proposal that is going to go nowhere and that is only going to bolster support for um, the current coalition and especially Prime Minister Netanyahu in his opposition to Palestinian statehood, this is it. Now, maybe that's beneficial because it means that Biden is publicly at odds with Netanyahu rather than Israel, and that's helpful for him in domestic politics. It's certainly not unhelpful to Netanyahu. What it contributes to the actual good of the Israelis and non-Hamas supporting Gazans I don't know. And I also don't know, as I said at the beginning, I don't know how substantive this is. I don't know how widely supported it actually is in the administration. I just one last thing, which is if you go back to the Obama presidency, when Obama came to Israel, he gave uh, an appearance on that trip. And he basically tried to reach out to the Israeli public over the heads of the leadership, over the heads of Netanyahu and his colleagues at the time. Uh, it, it didn't work then. It's even less likely to work now in the wake of October the 7th, when support for a two-state solution in principle, for an accommodation that, that relieves Israel of responsibility for millions of Palestinians, and that therefore guarantees a, a, a Jewish and a democratic Israel. In principle, there may be many people, myself included, who see that as Israel's only viable way to be both a majority Jewish state and a democracy. But the, the, the faith in the other side has never been lower after October the 7th. And surely you would think wise people everywhere, and certainly in the US administration, would be aware of that. As he wrote yesterday in an op-ed, the war in Gaza is far from over, but the potential for war in the North is growing day by day. And you alluded to this. It's not clear what the red line is that Hezbollah would have to cross for Israel to really escalate its response. Yesterday, of course, there was a deadly rocket attack. The previous day, a mother and child were badly injured. Are these the red lines? 
I mean, the red line obviously was was not deemed to have been crossed because Israel has not mobilized and begun an escalated response in Lebanon. But as I noted yesterday, there are more Israeli forces deployed close to the Lebanon border than there are fighting in Gaza right now. It has always been claimed by the chief of staff and others that most of the air force is either ready to move over to the northern front or is already you know poised to do so but israel does not want full-scale war against hezbollah in lebanon the assessment <laughs> is that hezbollah doesn't want this either uh, but we know that we should not take assessments terribly seriously at the moment the the one thing i i you know we, we definitely don't believe that israel will allow the the this episode this nightmarish episode since october the 7th to end with Hezbollah where it was before October the 7th, which is deployed right up against the border and planning as it was a much graver still version of what Hamas carried out on October the, on October the 7th. So either Hezbollah is moved back through diplomacy or it um, is moved back by force. And if there's a, 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 a resort to escalated conflict, there, are, you know, there, there need to be very major concerns about how that would impact the home front in Israel. Iron Dome, just in, in terms of the deadly attack yesterday, you know, we, we, we're like horrified, as we should be, when a rocket gets through, right? And the success rate, I, you know, I've heard uh, assessed as, as being something like 95%. It's not 100%. If it's 95%, that's higher than it has, you know, has been in previous rounds of conflict. And the more remarkable, because there have been so many rockets, so many thousands of rockets fired at Israel. You know, a rocket got through yesterday and a, a young soldier was killed because she, she couldn't make it to safety in time. The distances are, are very, very short. So in terms of, of red lines, you know, we've, we've been directed to understand that were there to be an incident with greater civilian uh, casualties, uh, were Hezbollah to target uh, strategic sites in Israel, remember it has precision guided missiles as well. Uh, there may be things that it that it does that uh, that would require uh, a more forceful response. Uh, but what we're seeing, we're seeing endless back and forth, with the potential, I think, at any moment for something even more devastating to happen that would necessitate a greater Israeli response. Even in a climate, certainly Israel doesn't want to fight on two fronts, fronts simultaneously. And it may be that Hezbollah is not interested in a wider war, but Hezbollah is certainly interested in distracting Israel in, from Gaza, in, in placing more strains on Israel, on ensuring that tens of thousands of people can't go back to their homes in northern Israel. So every day, the potential is there, I think, for greater escalation. David, thank you so much for your insights and updates. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for joining us on today's Times of Israel Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, Shalom. 